You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its associated websites, uh, One Step Off the Grid and the EV-focused The Driven. And joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK. David, I trust you are well. Uh, on one of the few uh, winter days here in Sydney, Giles, I am well. I trust our listeners are well. I trust you are well. And clearly all the politicians are well because they've been, um, well, making a lot of announcements. Look, it has been one of those um, weeks with lots of announcements. I'm not too sure where to start. Look, we do have an interview later on this episode um, with Raghu Balor. He is the founder um, or the co-founder and chief product officer of Enphase. And he's got some really interesting to say about distributed energy and uh, some of the sort of conundrums around that. And we'll get to that later because we just thought we'd just get to the news in part one of the podcast. And I guess... um, some of the stuff that's just come over our desk just in the last few hours, actually, David, some interesting things um, in Queensland. Um, transmission's obviously a very big issue. We've had uh, AEMO talking about it this week, a central gridlock on the grid, you know, sort of um, high curtailment of wind and solar, unable to move electrons from state to state as much as they would want to. Um, there's obviously a slowdown, or there's been a very slow rollout of transmission. Um, there's questions about social license. We've seen in New South Wales and Victoria that they've effectively doubled the payments to landowners to try and win them over, up to $200,000 a kilometre. Um, in total payments in Queensland have gone even better, up to, well, an average of around $300,000 a kilometre for land holders, plus some generous payments for near neighbours. So um, what do you make of that? Well, I think it's great. Paul Simshauser, when he joined Energy Insider's podcast, was pretty much hinting at that and learning the lessons. Uh, um, uh, you know, and, and Queensland needs to get on with things uh, even more than the other, st- as much as New South Wales. I think the uh, important thing here that they've taken from the wind industry is, is really to pay the neighbours uh, um, uh, Chris Bowen suggested this week that we needed to have more consultation and uh, better um, um, uh, social license a- a around transmission. Uh, there's still a number of people who think that tra- you can have uh, 100% renewables without any new transmission. Uh, I'm not one of those people. I think I'm in the majority. Um, and But getting social license from those people that are directly impacted from it uh, is important, and I think this is a great step. The only other thing I'd mention is that some people in the regions do need to remember they get electricity. They effectively get pay lower transmission costs in some ways per, per unit of consumption, someone at Broken Hill does, than, 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 um, than others, and they get a big benefit from electricity like everyone else, and you can't complain too much if a road goes near your property. Yeah, no, look, it's going to be interesting to see how that um, how that sort of smooths out the pathway um, for these transmission projects. I'm not too sure if it's just the direct landowners themselves, or, or, or has it been? I'm not really, I'm not really too sure. You've been closer to some of these transmission projects than I've been. I mean, is it sort of the, the those directly affected that have been sort of protesting against it, or is it just like a general sort of NIMBY type thing? I, I think um, interests. There are a lot of different uh, concerns. Some people just don't like the look of transmission and don't need, have no interest in having transmission 
and, and will always oppose it. Um, uh, and there's, it's the same for wind farms, frankly, as well, and to even to a lesser extent solar farms. Other people just felt that they weren't getting paid properly uh, for transmission and they would look at their neighbour who had wind turbines on his place and was getting a lot more money than them and, and felt that they should do better. Uh, look, paying more money won't solve all the problems, but I can hardly see it hurting. No, exactly. Yes. Well, look, I can't say that I've seen a transmission um, tower that I've liked the look of, although there have been actually some sort of, sort of more sort of sculptured um, designs, um, I think mostly from overseas. I'm not too sure why we don't do them in Australia. Maybe they might sort of add something to the landscape. Um, I don't mind wind turbines. I know some former and even some current um, politicians don't like them, but um, but still. Um, moving Giles, on. Yeah, Giles was going to say, that's, that's one of the tra tra interstate transmissions and within the state transmission uh, building and the social license for that that's one problem uh, the, the next problem is getting generators connected and we've seen a rule proposal to get that changed and the third one that won't no one's written anything about but I still care a lot about is getting an environmental plan for the whole of a renewable energy zone uh, at once so we don't every wind farm doesn't have its own separate year or two years of bird studies and you know a study of this and that uh, you can have a renewable energy zone like they have in Europe uh, and get some planning done en masse for it. Uh, and if we do that and map it all out, everyone will be in the picture about what's going to happen and we can have that fight and discussion once. But anyway, let's get back to the rule proposal for generator changes. Generator yeah, well, look, yes, no, look, I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in, in that sort of idea of yours with the sort of a, um, one size fits all environmental um, sort of um, approval for a whole zone. So are you making any headway on that? I mean, you have been talking about it a bit. I mean, do you know that something's emerging? No, Giles, um, I, I, the idea that you could have a master plan for an REZ like you have for a, a residential suburb or something here in Sydney, uh, is still something that I think uh, hasn't really uh, got out of the science fiction, uh, uh, you know, thought bubble stage, uh, which is what I exist to do. Well, yeah, well, it's made it onto this podcast a couple of times, and that's a good thing. Okay, um, connections. Look, we have seen some, um, um, there's been a lot of work going on in connections, because of course, it's been a major problem for many, many projects over the past couple of years, just um, actually getting approvals, um, getting past the very first stage of the registration process and then actually through the commissioning process. So one of the um, problem areas has sort of been at least partially addressed with a new rule change, which has been put forward um, by sort of like, what's well, a joint working group, I think, between AEMO and the Clean Energy Council. So that's going to the Australian Energy Market Commission, just to provide some sort of clarity over the sort of the, the, the R, what's called the R1 registration process. And this is just really like the first stage of a whole roadmap which I understand is actually going to be released next week or well, I hope next week but maybe the week after um, just seeking to sort of break down a lot of those problems that we've had like so you know you've if you think about all the big contractors that have fallen out of the market over the last couple of years a lot of them have been over the connections process because there's been massive delays everyone's kind of pointed the finger at each other and it's ended up in the laps of the contractors because they weren't able to get the commissioning or the connections done um, in the time that everyone expected and were hit with sort of liquidated damages and things like that other people have just have sort of hold the brunt and I, I guess we could probably point to dozens of projects which have been held up from various like three months six months a year and a lot of it's to do with sort of you know sort of second guessing and a lack of clarity over the process so that is a major step forward I think. Yes defined timelines uh, clear uh, allocation of responsibilities whether it's the transmission operator or AEMO or the generator uh, uh, putting um, issues into various categories that can be dealt with in different ways. Uh, all of this is uh, part of the 
progress. And again, I think it will fit into the REZ batching program as well. And the benefit is not just the reduction in the actual connection delays, but that's the risk, right? When you're looking at developing a wind or a solar project, uh, you run the risk of your environmental approvals, you run the risk of connection delays, uh, you run the risk of not uh, having any transmission, and you run the risk of cost overruns. There's a lot of risks there. And even though the price signals to build new wind and solar are there very strongly at the moment, and we should come on to the second El Tessa uh, tender, um, even though those price incentives are still there very strongly, there's still a lot of caution getting round because the risks are still high. And frankly, you can't get connected and it takes a long time to get approved. Um, exactly, exactly. Anyway, look, we, we hope to hear more about that next week. And uh, we also hope to have one of the people sort of cl um, closely involved in this whole, proce whole process onto the podcast in, in the next week or so. So um, we look forward to that. Um, as you, you did allude to the next round of El Tessas, and that, of course, is the um, second auction of the New South Wales government's um, renewable infrastructure pathway, which thankfully the uh, Labor government is running with. That was sort of set in motion by the previous coalition government. We saw in the first tender um, more than 1.3 gigawatts of wind and solar, although we have to say that um, half the solar had already been built. Um, and we saw intriguingly a 50 kilo, uh, sorry, 50 megawatt eight hour battery uh, winning that first part of the storage tender. So the second auction, which is going to be open from Monday, is for another gigawatt of um, wind and solar. So we'll be interested how much new that will, um, uh, how much new projects will will win that, and at what price. Um, and there's another 550 megawatts of capacity of long duration storage, which must be a minimum of eight hours. So it's going to be fascinating to see whether we ever we we see more long duration batteries and bigger capacities, or whether a pumped hydro project manages to sneak its way in. So, um, any thoughts about that, David? Yes. So again, in regards to that first El Tessa award. Uh, the point to make is that we're going to see, you know, two gigawatts a year or a little more, one gigawatt every six months. But the first piece of transmission infrastructure for this REZ program, which is the Arana one, uh, won't be ready until 2027. So there's going to be a, a, an awful lot of back ending of the actual construction uh, connections of all of these projects. We're going to have like five years of two gigawatts a year of projects. But they're all going to, many of them will struggle to get connected before about 2027. That's, uh, that's uh, 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 point uh, one. The other point I wanted to make is I was just looking at this. Historically, Australia has, including rooftop, including rooftop, been growing its uh, variable renewable energy, that's wind and solar, by about eight terawatt hours per year. And that's been a reasonably consistent rate. Uh, it went up to nine terawatt hours for a while, but it's back at eight now. And uh, that's, you know, we consume about 200 terawatt hours of electricity a year in the NEM. And uh, that's about, so that's about four, if we're connecting eight, that's 4% per year. So, you know, that's only 30% over eight years. So we need to accelerate, if I can put it that way. And at the moment, we should be accelerating, uh, but at the moment, there's absolutely no sign of it. If anything, it's declining a little bit. We're falling behind schedule, in my opinion, or we will shortly fall behind schedule. But I also accept it's a bit like a 50 over one day cricket match. You, you're a little behind at the beginning, but you're setting in place the foundations to, to have a go at the end. 
Yeah, well, absolutely. And um, look, as you say, um, apart from these sort of auction processes, um, we haven't actually seen many other sort of new wind and solar announcements, or we've seen some sort of big sort of you know game plans, which we'll get to. But I just thought I'd mention as well that um, we now know that South Australia and Victoria are going to be the first um, states to host auctions under the new capacity investment mechanism, which is really largely going to be based around the New South Wales model. Now, it might not be designed exactly the way, but they're kind of using that as a blueprint and for the states to kind of run their own course because, of course, they're at different stages of their um, transition and they've got sort of different resources. So South Australia is all wind and solar, basically no pumped hydro. As far as I can see, probably no prospect of pumped hydro because we had six projects there for a long time um, hanging out for arena funding or um, from um, uh, Angus Taylor's half-witted plan. Um, nothing ever happened to them. So they're going to be interested to see what they're going to do or seek to do with their storage auctions. And Victoria, of course, has a certain amount of hydro and possibly, you know, options for pumped hydro. So we'll see what happens there. Um, just talking about bigger projects. Charles, you know, it, surpri it surprises me that it's happening in the South first because to me it's New South Wales and Queensland that actually... Uh, need it more because that's where the coal generation is going to go away. Although that said, your lawn is going to go away. And uh, we need to mention, I think, that Victoria, uh, I saw on the Renew Economy website, uh, that uh, Victoria is going to legislate for a 95% uh, carbon reduction by, I forget exactly which date, but certainly 80% uh, Plus renewable energy by uh, by twenty thirty five is it? Uh, you can. Well, I think you got the, I think you got the data sent upwards. Actually, it's eighty percent reductions in emissions by twenty thirty and ninety five percent renewables by twenty thirty five. So say goodbye to the coal, brown coal generators. Their targets and, which and, ha and, have and, been announced, but it's going to be legislated, which is really interesting. I think so. And what I was going to just point at, if you look at a little bigger, we will have South Australia, which will certainly be a hundred percent or close to a bit of gas. And Tasmania, uh, all hydro. So the the kind of south of south of Australia is is a, is a pretty much a done deal now. Is what I'm, by twenty thirty is what I was trying to say. Well, it is, it is, yeah. And, and yet, fascinatingly, we hear from the um, uh, there's been some sort of the coalition has been talking about nothing but nuclear. Um, it was the centerpiece of Peter Dutton's budget reply. Um, it seems to have been the focus of some sort of Senate inquiry um, on Monday. I mean, no one really paid attention to it, but um, we had a piece from one of the observers there. Um, and of course, we've got the APIA conference in in um, in happening in Adelaide this week, and uh, the fossil fuel industry sort of um, well, I don't know. It, it it kind of points to the power, the link, you know, the, the the power of the fossil fuel industry. You've got all these ministers and these captains of industry, and the media coverage almost like wall to wall. Yet we were at the Smart Energy conference a couple of weeks ago, David, and it was a fantastic conference. There was a little bit of media coverage, but nothing like what the oil and gas industry has has gotten to go has gotten um, in the in the past few days. And I still find it extraordinary to hear people like Tom Coots and Turnus, the South Australian Energy Minister, saying basically, you know, um, we're open for business, come and do what you want. Um, you know, I'm yours, take me. Yeah, look, I think it's it's the traditional side of things is, is very powerful in Australia. 60, you know, it's not, don't ignore that uh, our export earnings come from coal and gas in, in the first part, and that's contributed to the budget surplus that we've had this year. I mean, uh, that that is a fact at the moment, and it's still not clear that uh, exporting hydrogen, for instance, is ever going to replace that coal and gas. At least it's not clear to me. I do think that if you're an investor, at the same time the Smart Energy Conference was on, 
Uh, I think the Financial Review General Investment Conference was on, which naturally was reported by the Financial Review pretty widely. And of course, they're they're naturally very conservative. But I felt as an investment analyst, you would have learnt far more about where the future business was coming from by turning up at Smart Energy. I'll, I'll say no more about it than that. Yeah, okay. You mentioned um, exports too. Um, hydrogen, of course, has been cited um, as a sort of you know major export replacement, although there is a bit more focus now on actually having sort of a green energy economy and sort of more added value and uh, expo- exporting sort of, um, you know, sort of green steel, as it were, and, and other things rather than the actual um, uh, raw fuel. But um, we're still hearing some hydrogen projects. Samsung has appeared to sign up to this uh, 5 billion Aerosmith project in Western Australia. Look, it is just an MOU. Uh, Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners are a partner in the Star of the South Offshore Wind project. We're talking about 30 gigawatt pipeline, including some massive hydrogen projects, 14 gigawatts in South Australia. Um, Look, we could probably tally up all the green hydrogen projects in Australia and all the wind and solar that would supposedly go around them and come up to a number of about 200 to 300 gigawatts. Um, how much of this a is A number even happen? bigger than the, the, the MOUs that uh, Andrew Forrester signed up. <laughs> well, there you go. He's got competition out there. How much of it is real? Uh, Look, I don't care. I I would be far more interested in an announcement that the Angular wind farm or the Liverpool Rangers wind farm or or the Banana Ridge wind farm or the Forest wind farm in Queensland uh, had actually reached FID than I I ever will be in these uh, big projects that are still will be making announcements and talking for years down the track. I mean... You know, they're they're all hard, lots of big capital, uh, terrific, endless headlines. I want to see someone just put another gigawatt of wind and actually start building it right now on land uh, somehow or other. David, I think that's probably a good point to end part one of this podcast. And in part two, we'll return with an interview with uh, Raghu Balor from Enphase. Powered by All Energy Australia. The New South Wales Clean Energy event, Energy Next, returns to the International Convention Centre in Darling Harbour on July 18 and 19. This free-to-attend exhibition and conference is a must for industry suppliers and experts and those involved in the renewable energy and energy storage sectors. Featuring leading international and national brands such as Schneider Electric, Investment New South Wales, 5B and more, you can't afford to miss this free event. Register now for Energy Next 2023, July 18 and 19 at the International Convention Centre, Darling Harbour, Sydney. Welcome back to part two of the um, Energy Insiders podcast for this week. Um, we did have someone lined up for a sort of a live interview, as it were, and unfortunately, sort of circumstances sort of uh, made that impossible. So during the recent Smart Energy Conference, which I talked about um, uh, moments ago with uh, David, um, one of the most interesting speakers was the Enphase co-founder and Chief Products Officer, Raghu Balor, who has an interesting sort of take on distributed energy, the ability of networks and generators and regulators to get their minds around sort of the some of the, the potential and some of the problems with distributed energy and how much is going to be you know generated and consumed in the home and this is all part of the electri- electrification process anyway enough of me talking let's hear from Raghu Balor from Enphase. Raghu Balor thank you very much for joining the podcast. Thank you happy to be here. Yeah, look, yeah. Um, you gave a really interesting speech this morning about the role of distributed energy in the green energy transition and I guess it's true to say that a lot of people put panels on their roofs, particularly in Australia, 
but they don't quite understand how important that is for the for this for this switch to to energy because it's going to be very hard to build enough large-scale stuff to make the transition but tell us what the role is of distributed energy yeah, in this yeah transition. i think it's a combination of things right the first and foremost is simply doing things in a centralized manner is not going to solve the big picture which is you know, getting to that one and a half degree C, which is the really the big picture, but more importantly, doing everything in this, the centralized solutions are necessary. They're not sufficient. Yeah. You need, in addition to doing centralized, you also need to do things locally, right? Where I locally produce, I locally store, and I locally consume. Um, the example that I was giving this morning is, look at what's coming. Mm. Electrification is, home electrification is coming in a very big way. Electric vehicles are coming in a very big way. People are moving away from gas to heat pumps. So the demand is going to go up two and a half X within the home, mm. right? Today we consume 20 to 30 kilowatt hours of energy, 20 or, 20 or so in Australia, 30 in the US. And if you start adding up, okay, each EV consumes 10 to 15 kilowatt hours per day, you have two EVs, everybody's gonna have two EVs. There's your 30 kilowatt hours and then add a heat pump. Now you have two and a half X, the amount of energy that you normally consume. The problem is just not that. It's not like the 30 kilowatt hours is consumed in a very uniform manner. It's very spotty, right? Um, EVs, you know, during the day, they're not at home. They come home in the evening and everybody imagine plugging in their EV at the same time. So you have to design systems, distribution, distribution systems, for those peaks, which means complete forklift, what are called forklift upgrades of the existing distribution infrastructure. That's simply not gonna happen. Really, if you go back to first principles and think about it, what's the solution? Solution is I produce my own energy locally, and of course I store it because I can, I'm gonna produce it with solar. Of course I need to store it, and then once I've stored it, I can use it however I choose to use it. For example, I come home from the uh, come home from work in the evening. I can run my home with the stored energy. I can even charge my car with the stored energy. But now I can also provide coordination in that if I if I have extra energy, I can trade it with my neighbor. I can mm. sell them my extra energy. Nothing precludes us from any of those possibilities if you can do things locally. I guess one of the things that would preclude things like that, though, are regulations and habits and sort of just the environment, the way the grids are managed and things like that. Do you think that the people that run the policy, that design the rules, that manage the grids, understand the significance and the possibilities um, with this distributed generation and storage and things like that? Or, or is, it, is it almost too hard for them? So there's one thing, you, one word you mentioned, habits. Yes. Right? You're absolutely right. We cannot have behavioral changes. Because anytime you build technology and expect behavioral change, if you if the, um, if for the technology to be successful, if it relies on behavioral change, it's not going to happen. Mm. If behavioral change happens organically, that's a different story. Mm. So what our job as technologists is to make your life seamless. This is a problem of abundance. Mm. It's not a problem of scarcity, right? I, it really struck home to me when my 13-year-old daughter, who I used to run behind her and flip, you know, like every dad, turned the lights off. And then one day she turns to me and says, Dad, we have so much solar. Why do you keep turning the lights off? You don't need to turn the lights off anymore. I was like, yeah, she's right. I have, you know, we've been conditioned to conserve, and I'm not saying don't do it, but I'm saying 
we have abundance now. It's called solar, solar within the home. You're absolutely right about your other question. The, the more important question is, do the regulators, do the policy makers, do they really appreciate the challenge at hand? And I, absolutely they don't. Mm. That's why they take the easier route. What's the easier route? Put a bigger plant in the middle of nowhere and put another transmission line and then what? Mm. Great, you feel good about percentages, right? You feel good about, hey, I may, in the US, we call it renewable portfolio standards. Oh, I met an RPS standard of 50% or 60%. Great, but those electrons can't get delivered to the home. Mm. Mm. Or even if, you know, the way they get delivered to the home is extremely inefficient. The problem are all these bottlenecks all along the way. So all the way to the substation, maybe it's okay. Beyond the substation, if you look at, you know, the conductors beyond the substation, look at the, the utility transformer, look at the service entrance that comes into your house, look at your panel board. It's not designed for two and a half X energy and almost more than two X the power. Mm. It's not designed for it. And the only way to solve it is do it behind the meter or if the bottleneck is a transformer, do it behind the transformer. So for example, imagine there's a transformer that's servicing 10 homes. How about those 10 homes transacting energy amongst each other? This will require regulatory and policy change because mm. today regulations and policies are not designed or architect to transact energy between homes. Yeah, you've spent a few days in Australia and obviously Australia is a key part of the Enphase market. So tell us your observations about what's happening here in Australia compared to the rest of the world. It's a different market in the sense that it's a it's a deregulated market. You know, I can go out there and I can pick my um, my retailer, right? Then there's the DNO. There's a notion of DNO. There's the gen tailors, generators, mm. and retailers. A mar that's an, a, a structure like that. While good in the sense that it creates some level of free market because I can buy energy from different um, retailers. What I'm also coming to realize is it's probably a little unnecessarily too complicated, mm -hmm. right? And but they, they, they say in Australia, confusion is profit. <laughs> confusion is profit, yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Let's make it so complicated that every time I change retailers, I need to sign a 50-page document, right? It's, it's, it is a little bit more complicated than it probably needs to be. I really appreciate the fact that it is truly free market, right? Um, the, you know, if you look at in the U.S., Texas is an example of a free market. But it cannot also be completely free market. There needs to be free market with guardrails. Mm -hmm. Look at what happened in Texas. There was no capacity market. They said it's free market. You can switch retailers. You can do whatever you want. There is a poles, you know, poles and wires operator, and then everything else. You can buy your energy from anywhere else. And then look what happened three year, two years ago when the big storm hit. There just wasn't enough capacity, mm -hmm. right? So you've got to have the right guardrails. By the way, there was all. It became very political and. People give examples about wind turbines freezing and all kinds of nonsense, right? The reality was the guardrails were missing. I think the market structure has to be such that simplify first a little mm. bit. I, I'm not um, an expert in Australian market dynamics to propose anything in terms of how it could be simplified, but it needs to be a little bit more simplified. Yeah. And second, is it could be, you know, one example could be like, in the US, again, I go back to the US example. In 1997, there was deregulation of the telecommunications market where you know, there was monopolies that had, pulled, that had twisted pair wires or your phone wires coming to your home. AT&T was that. 
And the government said, no, you have to open those wires up, even though, you know, it, that was your equipment, to any provider and they can lease those lines from you. Mm. That spawned a whole bunch of different small data providers and phone providers, etc., that could lease those lines. So imagine a world now where me as a prosumer, because I'm a producer and a consumer, I can then pay a small transport mm. fee, if you may, mm. and then I can sell to retailers, I can sell to my neighbor, I can, I'm a truly free market, free market enterprise that is transacting energy. It has to happen completely seamless. You know, a homeowner mm. is not gonna go sit there and go, let me sell you three kilowatt hours of energy. It's not, it has to be seamless. This is where the software and the expert system comes in and they can really analyze what's the best place to transact that energy so I can deliver whatever the use case the mm. homeowner desires, the homeowner wants pure economics or the homeowner wants carbon, op wants carbon optimization or green charging or whatever it may be, mm. but there has to be some sort of mechanism where kilowatt hours can be transacted. What about um, inverter technology? I mean, Interface is fundamentally an inverter company um, and sort of software and, and, and sort of smart, um, smart solutions. Where is this technology taking us? Yeah, actually we have um, transformed in that we we are, I mean, the brains of what we do is this power this power conversion device. Yes. I don't even call it an inverter anymore. Okay. <laughs> because it's a completely digital device. It's based on our own custom silicon, our custom semiconductor, our custom software. If you look, I know your, your uh, listeners cannot see this, but that's our custom chip. It's, it is kind of the brains of what, uh, what this beautiful device does arguably one of the most sophisticated pieces of power electronics in the world. Um, what it is, is it's the reason why it's a power conversion device is not only does it do act like an inverter, you put it on the roof, it acts like an inverter, but I can also put this inside a battery and not only can it act like an inverter, which is takes the DC out of the battery and converts it to AC, it can also go the other way. It can also take AC out of the battery and convert it into DC, which means charge the battery. So the same piece of power electronics can do both charge controller, inverter, can act like a inverter when on the roof, etc. But the same piece of power conversion device enables us to put this in front of an EV. Mm. And now suddenly the EV can become fully bi-directional and you get what's called V2X or vehicle to grid or vehicle to home capability, right? So, but all of that, the heart of all of this is the piece of semiconductors, the silicon that we showed, this piece of, this ASIC, basically this chip, and all the software that runs it. This device is completely software defined. I can tell it, hey, you're an Australian device. Mm. That means it says, great, I'm gonna be 230 volts, line to neutral, 50 hertz. I can take the exact same device and I can say, run a different piece of software on it and say, hey, you're an American device. Oh, I'm gonna run 240 volts, line to line, 60 hertz. Mm. Or it can be a Brazilian device, or it can be a, a Japanese device. I can choose pretty much configure this to be anything I want. So. We started off as a power conversion. This still, you know, company or an inverter company, and this still is kind of the foundational element of what we do, but we have transformed into an energy management company. And so when you think about energy management, we have think think about a platform, right? How homes becoming very sophisticated. You're gonna have solar, you're gonna have batteries, you're gonna have EVs, EV chargers, EV chargers are gonna become bi-directional. You've got to manage the grid, you've got to manage, you know, heat pumps you got to man manage other sources of energy, or, or like power sources like generators, etc. 
So the software has to federate the power flow between all of these devices and deliver the use case that the homeowner wants. Now I add a layer on top of that, one more complication. Think about what's happening in California with the new net, net billing tariff, which is M3.0. Every hour, I get a different rate for <laughs> buying power and for selling power. Mm. Mm. It's fantastic, it's the future. I'm truly trading energy at market rate, mm. right? So now the software is sitting there going, I have to federate power flow, including deciding when I want to buy and charge my battery, when I want to sell from my battery, or when I want to sell from my resource, when I want to curtail my load. All of these things are possible through that platform that we have developed, the core element of which is this power conversion device, but it's got this really sophisticated software layer that's sitting on top and managing your entire system. I get the impression sometimes that technology is actually running right ahead of what the grid regulators, the actual grid system and, and, and the policy makers, going back to the question I had before. I mean, it, and how much of a problem does that create and, and, and how do we make sure that those those rules and those environments actually keep up to keep up with the technology? Because You know, this is part of the course. Yeah. It's normal yeah. that technology, you know, will always lead the way. Mm. Um, you know, look at all the incredible amount of discussions that are going on with chat with AI, right? Mm. People are really worried. Technology is going at a fantastic pace. We need to catch up. Think about the same thing that happened with, uh, you know, with CRISPR, with, with you know, mm. mRNA vaccines and what do we do, right? So this is normal, right? Mm. Regulations always have to catch up. You know, in all fairness, the policymakers and the regulators um, have a tough job and they're not technologists. They don't know where technology is going. So it, the burden lies on the industry. Mm. We have to bring policymakers and regulators mm. along. And the way you bring them along is by over communicating, sharing a lot, sharing real data, right? Showing them what's possible. Yeah. And when you do, I think you'll see the right outcome, yeah. right? Because after all, you know, they are also, they probably own solar and battery, and you know, they are also part of the part of the ecosystem that we all live in, right? To limit uh, global warming at 1.5 degrees requires just this fundamental transition in the electricity grid and things like that. How confident are you that at least the electricity part of it and some of the things, the services that it will deliver, because everything is going to be electrified, that we can actually sort of reach those targets? And what does that look like? You know, a lot of problems to be solved. And I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, right? Yeah. Uh, so, but we need to accelerate. The point mm. I was trying to make is that it, we have to do a lot more, a lot faster. Australia, shining star when it comes to penetration of solar, mm. right? Um, the most amount of solar um, on a percentage basis. Yes. Tw over 20%, mm. right? 20% of solar. Now it needs more solar. It's 20%, you know, means that just the number of homes that have solar. But they need, every home needs even more solar because when you electrify, your capacity, your consumption goes up and I have to manage, I have to match the consumption by putting more solar. Yes. You may have had a four kilowatt of solar before, now you need eight. Yes. Now you need 10 kilowatts. I need more, I, you know, you've never had batteries and now I need 20 kilowatt hours of batteries, right? And technology is such that we will, our job is to make it such that we'll drive the cost down, we'll improve the performance, we'll increase the reliability, we'll increase the safety. That's our, our job. So 
we cannot take the amount of time we took to get here. We just don't have mm. the time. Mm. We just simply don't have the time. It took us, took Australia 15 plus years to get to 20 percent. Mm. Right? You just cannot get there. But if you, you know, it's going to take 5x that to get to 100 percent penetration, and which means you run out of time. Right? Yeah. So we have to see a heavy acceleration on deployment of solar and storage and EV chargers and EVs, sorry, EVs and heat pumps, etc. And that brings along a whole plethora of, of, um, of challenges, right? All solvable challenges. Um, but for example, we need a much bigger workforce, right? Can't do with the number of people that we have. We need new means of financing these systems, mm. right? You don't have to, not everybody needs to pay cash. You can build finance systems, right? New way of distributing the product, bringing it, you know, new channels to get to get the product to market. And then technology will solve the power flow problem in, 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 the, in the network. I, that is my, least of my concerns because I think we got that covered. We'll figure that part out. Technologists will figure that part out. I'm more worried about everything else, like job training and financing and channel, etc. Right. Those are, the, you know, take a little bit longer to solve, but uh, technology is there to solve it. Well, Raghu, thank you very much for joining the uh, podcast, and um, I look forward to talking to you again sometime down the track. Awesome, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And that was uh, Raghu Balor from Enphase, the co-founder and um, chief products officer of the uh, California-based group. Um, David, it's um, this whole electrification process we hear so much about. It saw Griffith also spoke very eloquently at the um, at the Smart Energy Conference. But um, now you've gone through that whole sort of electrification process um, in your household. Um, it hasn't been easy, and I think one of the big points about electrification for the masses is is actually not easy is it i mean we can kind of see why we'll do it and that we will do it but to actually do it quickly and in an organized fashion requires so much look Enphase is interesting it was nearly broke in 2017 the share price was down to you know uh, 10 us dollars five years ago and now it's 300 us dollars uh, so that's pretty exciting if you're an Enphase investor I've got Invasion microinverters on my, 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 my roof, but they are a premium product. Uh, I just, uh, I like having them. I think uh, electrification of the household is a really big deal. As I've said last week, we, I think I said last week, really we've given a lot of uh, help to the rooftop solar sector and made it one of the, made it per capita easily the world's leading and an example of how to do it. In the process, we've shown the rest of the world how to, how to get installation costs down and connections are very easy for rooftop solar, the only thing. But we've never done anything for household storage in the same way. Uh, and we've never done anything, had a generalised uh, equivalent of an RET target for storage. And, uh, you know, I think we, there's a sector, the household battery sector, is open for business. There are a lot of batteries, the technology's matured enormously over the past five years. And even allowing for the contribution that car batteries vehicle to the grid could be made, a little bit of uh, financial help, uh, frankly, um, uh, would still leave consumers paying for most of the household batteries and could do an enormous amount uh, to, to get over this Fermin issue instead of waiting for, you know, a five gigawatt or two gigawatt pumped hydro project, which will take an absolute minimum of 10 years to build. We, we, we could... We could have gigawatts and gigawatts of household storage installed within five years if, if just just by giving the financial signal. 
Absolutely. Um, but as I think as Raghu pointed out, it also needs some sort of coordination and some sort of recognition that um, we kind of, um, yes, we, 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 we have the technology here, but um, it, it, it needs, yes, it it, um, it does need coordination. Um, I should point out too that... Um, and sorry, Giles, just, I, I, just talking on the, you know, we need to re define and have do some good thinking about network topology by which i mean you know we've got this idea that everything comes from the top and spreads down but actually if we can do better these days with grid forming batteries at every level utility level household level community level where we can i think it's now the possibility of having a distributed uh, series of grids which would be far more effective powerful uh, and and you know uh, or whether it is or not, we need someone who's good at this stuff to actually design a network te topology so everyone can then say what's wrong with it. And I'm drawing your attention to the uh, Jack Curtis interview from NERA um, with their sort of valuable insights into the capabilities of the networks, the existing sort of distributed networks and the fact that they can probably host and have capacity for a lot more than they actually realise. Um, it's just um, one of the sort of the findings of actually having sort of greater visibility over the poles and wires with you know, better technology. That, that's an interesting um, insight. Um, David, look, I think that's probably a bit of a wrap for this week. Um, I'd just like to point out that uh, we actually do have an electrification series coming on Renew Economy, which will be a mixture of articles, podcasts, and um, and other such things. So look out for that, and we're going to be addressing exactly some of these issues, which Raghu pointed out, and obviously sort of quite, you know, sort of... Um, um, high in the, in the minds of many people. Um, refer people to our Solar Insiders podcast. We had a great interview with Andy McCarthy, one of the great um, heroes of the, sort of the solar industry, sort of started his business in Little Trove Valley um, a few years ago. Everyone thought he was crazy. Um, and he sort of emerged as the head of RECV Solar and is now sort of um, taking some time out and going traveling. And also the Driven podcast. Uh, we had a great interview with Stanford and Rethink Energy's Tony Sieber um, last week. So I point out and, that. And uh, Charles. One thing we didn't quickly mention, uh, for very good reasons, we didn't talk about uh, the Liberal Party's nuclear policy, but now we have, and we can get back to talking about what's actually happening. <laughs> I'm sure I mentioned it sometime in the podcast, but I'm very sorry I didn't actually. Um, look, there's a withering critique and just sort of pointing out what sort of um, nonsense, nonsense it was, and it really is just, um, yes. Um, I'm not too sure whether that's a very upbeat end, but anyway, we will end up there. Um, David, we'll be back next week. Thank you very much. Um, thank you to Raghu Balor also. also for his time. Um, thanks, of course, to our sponsors, um, Pylon and Evergen. Do look out for our other podcasts, Solar Insiders and The Driven, and we'll be back again next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.